You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, it's Greg LeBlanc, and this is Unsiloed. I'm here today with Tom Vanderbilt, who is a prolific journalist and also the author of a bunch of books. Most recently, this book right here, it's called Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning, which I really enjoyed. We're probably going to spend most of our time talking about that, but you've got some other books. This book I read, I think, 12, 13 years ago or so. It's called Traffic, which I really, really enjoyed this book. And then this one also, which I really liked, is called You May Also Like Taste in an Age of Endless Choice. So I don't know whether we'll have a chance to talk about these books because this one is just so rich and so interesting. And I think we could probably talk about it all day. So welcome, Tom. Glad you could make it. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. So just to kick off this book, how do you get your book ideas? And in particular, how did you get this idea for this book? Did you presumably start writing the book after you had decided to undertake all of these initiatives and start learning chess with your daughter and so forth? Or did you have this in the back of your mind that you were interested in the topic before you started jumping into learning all these new things? Good question. Yeah. I mean, just in general, it is a very sloppy process. And sometimes, for example, with traffic, that was purely an accidental moment on a highway in the state of New Jersey, where I find myself now. But that then uncovered this strange world to me that was very familiar and all around us, but yet still seemed to contain a lot of mystery. And I was just flabbergasted by the amount of research I quickly found when I delved into a few simple topics. Beginners, in a way, a similar thing, but as there are often with many books, there wasn't an article length treatment that sort of set it all off, which was this case of my daughter. Uh, She was four at the time. We were playing a game of checkers. She saw a chessboard. She wanted to play that game, which I thought was wonderful, except I didn't really know how to play. I'd never learned it, much to my kind of enduring shame. So I wrote an article and I was quite taken with the reaction to that and also the experience I had of learning this new thing, skill, endeavor, particularly at the same time as my daughter, who was a novice four decades younger than me. But it really seemed to tap into an interesting strain of thought that people have about wanting to learn new things, about how to do that. Chess, of course, went on to become much more popular. I didn't anticipate that because of the Queen's Gambit. Just got lucky there. But after that article came out, and then I got a contract for the book that I then set out in earnest to learn all these things. The book raises an interesting question, which is, when we talk about being good at something or bad at something, is it possible to be good at learning without being good at anything in particular? In other words, in the academic world, we're dominated by specialists. In medicine, for instance, you know, you're dominated by specialists. Specialists tend to be the ones that get paid the most. And generalists are kind of looked down on. And I think you you talk about the origin of the word dilettante in the book a little bit. But it seems like in today's world, with things changing so rapidly, it's almost as if the generalists are going to wind up taking over the world simply because by the time you become an expert in something, that field has kind of moved on. Is there a, a sense that This idea of generalized learning is a skill in and of itself, independent of the subject matter that you're learning. And I ask this just because you're as a journalist, journalists are also like these generalists that are surfing from topic to topic and they have to get up to speed very quickly on them. And then as soon as they feel like they know something a lot about a topic, they wind up moving on to a completely different topic in ways that academics don't. 
Yeah, you're right. I don't actually know of research per se, but I, I do think it is sort of a muscle in that knowing where to look, knowing how to look, knowing what to filter out, what information will probably not help you. I myself have a short list of things I often do in the beginning of some kind of project, one of which, for example, would be, apart from talking to actual experts, but for example, something that a lot of people aren't familiar with outside of their field would be that field's trade publications. To me, these are very obscure but fascinating repositories of all kinds of interesting information. There's Elevator World or there's two magazines about pallets, about shipping pallets. Right. And you'd think it was the most boring thing in the world, but you open these pages and you, and you just, it sort of hits you like, wow, these people, there's a lot of people thinking a lot about the very hard problems here. I've become very adept at knowing how to do that. I don't think when I started this book with beginners, which is a bit more about learning skills rather than information, that I was a bit rusty, I think. And I would say rusty at the general skill of being a beginner. I was just chatting about with a computer scientist named Peter Denning. He had students, there'd be these cases where people who are quite adept at other types of technology would have to learn some sort of new language or application. And for a moment, there was a deep unhappiness in that classroom because all of these people who were quite used to being very competent were on equal footing as beginners. And probably some learned it a little bit quicker than others. But just that general overall skill, the idea of being comfortable with not knowing, of being awkward, of asking dumb questions, that's something I think we do lose a little bit of sight of as, let's say, middle-age adults. It's been a while since a lot of us have felt that. Sometimes abject terror, I argue, sometimes great pleasure at not knowing and, and sort of stumbling into something. Perhaps what's happened is that technology and science keeps becoming more complex and specialization itself becomes a dead end because those specializations change so quickly that there's this phrase people use called the perpetual novice in technology that you're always on the edge of having to adapt anyway. So what's the use in drilling down into, into one thing too much? And Robert Root Bernstein has some great research on this that David Epstein in his book, Range, a great book about the subject you're asking about, specialization, looks at these careers of Nobel Prize winning scientists. And he analyzed, and they were much more likely statistically to have been involved in a side pursuit, something like singing or, or being an amateur magician, anything, you name it, they were more likely than scientists that had not won the Nobel Prize. So he's sort of making this interesting correlation there that maybe either those people were just sort of more open-minded to begin with, open to experience, more creative, or they had brought something into their field from those side pursuits that ended up being useful. You mentioned also there's a definition, a difference between science and engineering. I think somewhere in, in the book, something about science perpetually not really knowing what it's doing and engineering, you really kind of have to know what you're doing. Yeah, that's a mathematician named Richard Hamming who worked at Bell Labs and some other places. And he made this distinction. So scientists, yeah, science is about probing beyond what we already know and making hypotheses and plunging out in experimentation and looking for new data, trying to confirm that data, but always beginning something not knowing how it's going to end up. Engineers is what we are in our daily career. So the distinction yeah. here is scientists are experimenting. Engineers, really, if you don't know what you're doing, you shouldn't be doing it, as he said. Scientists, if you know what you're doing, you should not be doing it. So in my book, I was about becoming that scientist. And this was all on the side for me. It wasn't, I mean, it was related to my career, obviously, because I was writing a book about it, but I wasn't going to have to make money off of any of these individual pursuits. It wasn't writing lessons that you were taking, right? Right, and I wasn't going to become a professional chess player or uh -huh. surfer, so I could just have fun if I never became even halfway decent. That was fine, too, but I could learn to separate performance from pleasure and from other things I might take out of this 
activity, which were not always directly correlated to performance. I think that's a symptom of our age, that cult of mastery of needing to be Mm -hmm. good at something. And it particularly affects adults, I think, when they go into the learning process. This is something that distinguishes them from children who, you know, children learn in a very low pressure environment. It's been suggested this is one of the reasons they're so so adept at learning, but adults, you know, put all this immediate pressure on themselves. They don't want to look bad. They want to get good as soon as possible. They want to get out of that beginner stage. Who can blame them? But that pressure, I think, only inhibits the actual learning. Fear of failure is something that people in Silicon Valley, people talk about fail fast, fail often. And that's sort of the mantra out here. And I think the reason why people have to say it so often is because it's not something that people grasp naturally. You talked a little about infants. Could you go back and kind of review what is so special about infants? I mean, they're falling down all the time, and that's how they're learning. Yeah, I mean, it kind of gets this idea of unstructured, unsupervised, un-goal-oriented learning. And I went to a place called the Infant Action Lab at NYU, which is run by a professor named Karen Adolph. They're particularly interested in mobility, which is one of the key things we learn in our first few years of life, along along with language. And these things are very essential to us. I mean, it's one thing to be a 50-year-old trying to learn chess as sort of a pursuit or a hobby. That is not crucial to my well-being on this planet. But if you're a young infant communicating with your caregiver, being able to move toward your caregiver. These are very important things. So I was fascinated, though, because there are all kinds of assumptions we might have about the way infants move and learn to move that, for me, were overturned in this lab. One, for example, would be that babies would have very clear goals in their mobility. Like if you put a baby on one side of the room and their their parent was on the other, or there was a really good-looking toy, that they might really make a beeline for that toy. But infants really have these random patterns of mobility that don't seem to have any clear purpose except to satisfy, I think, their own curiosity. And they are just exploring and learning as they explore. So I think mobility for them becomes an important means to learning more. And there's even some question why an infant who's crawling quite well should want to walk. The truth is you can learn moving to that upright stance increases the amount of things you can see. It lets you get places faster. It brings you closer to the people you want to communicate with. So there's all these hidden functional things behind walking. Another interesting thing is moving from crawling to walking, all the things those infants learned as crawlers, they don't really carry over into walking. All all the information about hazards, for example. So they'd have these great experiments at NYU where infants would crawl up this ramp And they'd get to the end of it and see, oh, it looks like a steep drop-off, or or maybe they even once went over it and learned it was a steep drop-off. So they they become cautious, but then as walkers, they'll just plunge, they'll sort of walk toward the edge. And and I was sort of asking, wouldn't it be useful for them to maintain this information about hazard? And Dr. Adolph was saying that would get in the way of the learning process, because they're now moving with a different body, it's a different exercise, it's a different type of mobility. Yeah, so I just found there were a lot of things I could learn, or we all could learn, from the way those infants were learning. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the way in which young people learn versus older people. When you were learning to play chess alongside your daughter, I think she was outpacing you pretty quickly. And so a lot of people say that for certain things, kids can learn much more quickly, like with languages and so forth. I think we as adults can probably, if we needed to learn a lot about the science of traffic, could probably learn that much more quickly than, say, a young person. What are the main differences in terms of these learning capacities, learning styles, and are they inevitable? Or can we somehow go back and retrieve some of the advantages that we may have had as younger learners? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think there's a couple differences which we should probably break into, let's say, lifestyle differences. I mean, number one, kids just have a lot of free time to do nothing but learn. Adults don't have all day to do this generally. So when we hear about this tremendous progress that young kids make in something like language or music, you sort of have to look at the actual number of hours. So the lifestyle factor is huge. But then cognitively, I think children definitely have more of a tendency toward what's been called fluid intelligence, sort of fast problem-solving, quick responses, whereas adults tend to have more crystallized knowledge, which is what we might call wisdom, accumulated facts, and memories. In a game like chess, my daughter would have an advantage, I think, against the clock or playing these short games, which are called blitz games. She wasn't concerned with opening strategy or, or these things that I was immediately interested in because having played a lot of games in my life, I was sort of like, well, how do you win? What's the strategy? Kids just sort of play move by move, and they don't really think too long about the move they're making, nor do they really regret the move they made. And they just plunge on sort of like those infants bumbling about the NYU laboratory. Truth is that they're often quite good. And going back to that scientist versus engineers, they're, they're scientists, they're, they're just testing these hypotheses about how they make it better. And going back one more time to the lifestyle thing, though, my daughter would play a game of chess and then have to analyze it with her coach, which is very important. This is part of deliberate practice, as it's known, the famous theory espoused you know, in part by Anders Ericsson, the psychologist, that if you had 10,000 hours of that deliberate practice, you might reach expert level performance. I found, and many chess players I've talked to find the analysis a little bit it's like doing your homework. It can be a little bit boring. It's more fun to just play, play again, and you don't take as much away from those games. You're not really analyzing the game. So my daughter, in some ways, was progressing more because she was engaging in more deliberate practice because her coach made her. Mm -hmm. Whereas left to my own devices, I was just trying to get better through sheer brute force, play multiple games, which I think her strategy was much better, which is why she became a better player. And to this day is, I think I can still give her a good battle, but I think rating wise, she's ahead of me. Of course, the kids, when they're learning to walk, they don't have any coaches. They don't have any uh, teachers, right? They're, they're just learning through their own experimentation. Exactly. They do have a very supportive audience, of course, and that's important too. But again, that lack of pressure, no one is, is really expect them to get better at a certain rate. There's a corollary here with the way that children babble. And I was talking to a psychologist who was trying to learn German and she had engage in a little bit of, of adult babbling in German because it's a way to really help, particularly with the accent, because these are sounds that you're simply not used to making as, let's say, a 40-something adult who's been speaking English their whole life. And this is, again, one of those challenges that is a bit harder for the adult learner because if I were to try to learn German tomorrow, I have now five decades of English grammar and maybe some Spanish grammar getting in the way of that, whereas mm. a kid hearing it for the first time, it's just something else that their neural architecture can just gobble up. There's nothing getting in the way of that. This has been called the less is more hypothesis because children actually have less <laughs> that they've already learned. It makes learning new things a more efficient process. I use the metaphor of an old lumbering PC with an old hard drive filled with many years of documents. Someone asks you, oh, my, my wife and I are always doing this. Like, what, what was that movie with what's his name? And you're sort of scratching your head. And it's like, I've seen so many films. I've known so, names yeah. of so many actors. I'm going through that hard drive and it might take me an hour, but there's a lot of other information that we have to overcome, a lot of muscle memory, a lot of things like that, which makes learning new things a bit less fluid, I think, than for children. You didn't exactly quote Yoda, but I think you, you made the point that a lot of learning requires unlearning and that 
when you enter into certain activities, you have to, to become better. You have to strip away some of the unconscious habits that you might have. You took up drawing, you took up juggling. Could you talk a bit about that? How did you kind of refocus and, and relearn or undo these assumptions that got in the way of learning these new tasks? Yoda is definitely a spirit guide in all of this stuff. But yeah, I mean, number one, with something like juggling, there's a natural impulse, I think, especially for beginners to try to pay attention to everything going on in the moment. And you have this idea that that's how you juggle, that you're throwing these three balls in the air and somehow you're, you're keeping track of each of them individually, literally. And that really is not how juggling works. Rather, instead, we throw to patterns. And this was a constant struggle for me. I kept trying to focus on individual balls. And, and my daughter, even the first time I tried to teach her to juggle, was doing exactly the same thing. And, and it quickly overwhelms you because you can't really track those three balls at once. Instead, you can throw to a single point in the sky and you have a peripheral awareness of those balls. So that's the kind of unlearning that coaches are constantly trying to instill in people. On a surfboard, not to look at the nose of your surfboard, but to look where you want to go, as they say, and the body will sort of magically do the rest. Something like singing, I found that the act of talking, which obviously we all do much of much of our lives, we try to act that way in singing sometimes, and we bring in sort of the wrong musculature or the wrong approach, and that can get in the way. And those sorts of things had to be unlearned for me in singing. I, I wanted to sort of plunge right into immediately just belting out songs, but even how to pronounce sung words, which is a very different thing than pronouncing spoken words, I, I saw in a lot of these things is, is trying to get yourself out of the way of what you were trying to learn and become instead a learning machine that was just adopting whatever algorithm it was rather than doing a lot of active thinking on your own because that active thinking often gets in the way of motor skill activity. There's a fascinating thing that happens when you learn a new skill like let's say beginner readers and the certain network of the brain is is really activated and lit up for a little while and then as we get better all that activity begins to calm down and it never gets back to that unless you do something like with reading, for example, if you did one of those experiments where you stripped out a lot of the letters in a paragraph, let's say, when you have to work again, that's when all those regions become activated again. But otherwise, it's purely automatic behavior that we're kind of coasting around on autopilot for most of the things we do, which, which is good because otherwise we'd be overwhelmed and our brains would always be hurting, which I will say this is one thing that definitely dominated my experience of trying to learn all these things. Often, I just really had headaches and, and fatigue. And this is that kind of thing when, when you feel frustrated and, and it, it feels like you're not getting it, and it literally is hurting your head, that's when you're learning. When it's effortless, and then you've already learned it, and at the moment is gone, you've made it automatic, and maybe it's time to try something new. So you had said in the book that Lionel Messi would make a terrible soccer teacher. Is there a difference between being good at something and being able to teach it? And all fairness to Lionel, he, maybe he actually could be a good teacher, which is to say, though, that the teaching aspect is a different skill than the playing aspect. I would guess, and it's been shown through experience, that a lot of superstar athletes, they're so far removed from those moments when they were just learning, which may have been as children, mm -hmm. that for them to go back and analyze those first steps would be impossible because they this is the thing we were just kind of talking about with walking there's that initial moment where you have to break down all these individual steps it's called chunking and that's why beginners are so clumsy because you know, me on a surfboard i'm like okay there's a wave coming i have this checklist in my head of 10 things i'm supposed to do and i'm running that off in my head which slows me down and then i might miss item number three or six that slightly screws it up Lionel Messi does not have a checklist of, of how to score a goal. He's just 
thinking intuitively and his right. you know, brain and body are moving very quickly. But in the beginning, that, that checklist sort of is the way we have to learn and the way things have to be taught. So there's a, yeah, there's an interesting argument that people can learn better from watching the error-filled efforts of fellow novices or maybe even intermediate performers. If you're learning to speak a new language, you don't start in by watching a film where there's going to be a lot of rapid speaking and slang. You start with those sort of very simple sounding, slowly spoken exercises, because otherwise you'll, you'll lose the plot. And some of it, I think, is just time and, and speed. But then your juggling instructor, she admitted that she was not a very good juggler, and maybe that was what made her a good juggling instructor. And in the university environment, we have people that are extraordinarily sophisticated and good at what they do, and yet they're thrust into the position of having to teach it. And often that means they have a great deal of difficulty. And oftentimes, I think the topics can be taught better by people who either aren't as good at it or who have maybe more recently learned it. And I think the whole Montessori approach to teaching is that the third graders teach the second graders who teach the first graders. And Mm. it seems to be very effective. Yeah, I could see that. And in fact, recently, my daughter had an exercise for school. She had to draw something and she had a photograph of our cat and she was trying to draw it. And she came to me and asked for some advice about it. And of course, I got a little bit overzealous and ended up basically taking control of the project. And uh, I don't mean to brag, but of course, then they wanted to display the work in the school. And I sort of had to explain to the teacher that I actually helped a little bit with that. But I'm not saying I'm an amazing artist, but what I found very satisfying was I was teaching her what I had learned. This is sort of an obvious thing, but I think we forget about it or we don't have as many chances to do this as we might like. That's a powerful way to kind of close the feedback Mm -hmm. loop there too. If you can explain it to someone else, then that just reaffirms it in your own brain, I think, and it helps you become better at that thing yourself. Teaching is something that I think can be done even at the lowest levels of your own progress. In juggling, let's say, three-ball juggling is the entry point to what's considered juggling, but a lot of people don't know how to do that. So after a week, if you can become a three-ball juggler, you now have the capacity to teach other people how to three-ball juggle, and you'll probably become better for that. So do you think there's still a role for the coach or the teacher? A lot of people have been penned up by the pandemic, and presumably a lot of people have taken up all sorts of new hobbies and challenges, but they've done so primarily maybe by watching YouTube videos. Is there a difference between having a coach and a trainer and a teacher versus kind of teaching yourself through YouTube or reading a training manual or how-to book? It sort of depends on what the activity is. I mean, some things are very rigid, as they've been described. Chess is a very ordered world that if you do online puzzles, or for example, there's there's one best reply in that puzzle, and that's what they're looking for. There's not like 20 different, it's not a subjective. So it's very easy to analyze yourself using the new chess engines and things like that, which is not to say a coach isn't still very useful. But contrast that to something like singing, where you're trying to gain control of this set of muscles that you can't even actually see yourself. It's not like a golf swing or a tennis stroke. Knowing how to produce that set of sounds and then knowing whether you're actually producing them is something that the feedback that a coach and my voice coach was sometimes almost peering down my throat. I felt like to really, to really sort of analyze what I was doing and how, how I could position my body better. And it's not to say that this stuff couldn't be done online. And I guess even there, there's a distinction. Is it an online course with a live instructor or is it a recorded class? I, I think both of those things have their benefit, but, but for some activities, the live coaching is definitely the way to go. And people also have different personality types. I'm not talking about learning styles, which is that's sort of a myth that's been 
discredited in many articles, the idea of like a kinesthetic learning sense, or I'm, I'm a visual learner. It's more about, are you a good autodidact? I think I am with certain things, but for many things, I, I really rely quite heavily on coaches or just people who know what they're doing. I find that to be a very, for me, a faster route to learning than trying to hack through it myself online. But again, I think that that could be just down to personality. So a lot of the things that you reference, whether it's learning sports or, or learning drawing or, or learning music, I think at, at one point, maybe in some mythical past, those were all part of a formal young person's education. And I think a lot of those things have been questioned as maybe not so useful in today's world. And there's a lot of pressure for students to acquire whether it's STEM education and make sure they get good test scores. Do you think there's something lost when we kind of strip those things out or are they compensated for by external pursuits that young people are going to do no matter what? And it reminds me of there's a great moment in a Robert Heinlein story, the science fiction writer, where he lists this list of things that humans should be able to do. And it's a kind of a crazy list of things like plan an invasion, change a diaper. I mean, it's, it's very wide ranging and, and a bit a bit farcical, but it's a bit maybe off topic of what you asked. But it makes me think of as we're steering kids constantly into these sort of STEM careers, how there's some just other fundamental roles that are out there. And I myself wish I had learned a bit more of that stuff when I was growing up. It's to the point now where I can't actually change the oil in my own car, which is this incredibly complex computer-driven thing. But things like drawing, at least to have some exposure to it, and it doesn't take that long to gain a certain facility with drawing, just as a way to be able to record the world around us in 2D, I think has a practical application of, it's another way of looking at the world, it's another way of understanding the world, it, it teaches focus and concentration and and can be quite useful for all sorts of things. The question that people would ask you is, what's it for? You mentioned that the long arm of the job and how everything you do is supposed to be in the service of your your employment or becoming that master of whatever it is that is your vocation. None of these things seem to really Learning how to surf doesn't really seem to, this is not making you a better journalist, right? I mean, what's it for? Why learn all this stuff? I just thought it was not resume building. It was sort of this life resume building where I just, I felt like I was, it's not that I was coming from a deep position of unhappiness. I just felt that there was a lack of experience that was going on because I had restricted myself to either sticking with the things I already knew how to do and had learned a long time ago, or essentially just sticking with work. And that's a very easy thing to do in today's world. Mm -hmm. People don't really criticize you for being busy or for being devoted to your job. But to my mind, there was this, I felt I had done enough of that. And it's not like I, I can't still make professional growth in writing, but sort of like the Peggy Lee song, is, is that all there is? So I, I wanted to kind of go to this other part. Again, purely self-interested. I can't say that I'm, it's making the world better or anything, but I, I think this is an argument we've seen with the pandemic. People wonder about the so-called self-care. Is that a selfish act? I think the argument is that if you don't feel good about yourself, you're not going to be any, any use to the world. Well, you make a distinction between process and, and product and how so many of us, we evaluate our activity based on some benchmark. Did I get the four-minute mile or, or whatever, rather than how much did I learn? And, and obviously, you're going to learn more when you try to do things you're bad at and maybe try and incrementally improve what you're already good at. I've spoken to some other folks who have 
bemoaned the hyper-competitiveness of the activities that they have their kids participate in. So like the soccer league tournaments where if you're not doing it 18 hours a day, then you're never going to make the local team. And, and so just doing it for the fun of it is something that seems to be kind of squeezed out of our children's lives. Can we kind of strip out the fun if we make it too kind of end goal oriented or product oriented and then crush the motivation that might be there? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. I think this is something that there's a turning of the tide of opinion about. Roger Federer was not playing only tennis at a very young age. He was doing a lot of other things and then sort of grew into eventually finding himself in in tennis. And you see that the prodigy is actually a very rare thing. And that, I mean, I've seen, let's just say in the chess world, the New York City scholastic competitive chess world is very competitive. And I've seen immense amount of pressure poured upon children by parents, ostensibly well-meaning, after a match had concluded, just badgering them about why they had lost. And these are parents that actually don't know how to play the game themselves, which I find a bit strange. So I think that impulse, it takes a lot of the joy out of it for kids. And this has been cited in research that a lot of children are turning away from youth participation in sports because they're, they're burned out or they're not feeling the pleasure. I myself I don't think we ever lose that desire to compete. And I, I mentioned in the book how I became obsessed with with road cycling and that that was sort of a one-way trip to just always trying to get better. And there's there's a quote from Greg LeMond, the, the famous cyclist, it, it never gets easier, you just go faster. At first, I sort of took that ethos to heart and I was just, okay, and you start at a category five, then you get better, you're a category four, then three, then two, then one. And each of those leaps, though, it immense more amount of time is, is required and effort. I just found that I was quickly burning out. And I, I found more pleasure coming from trying new things and not investing so much ahead of time in trying to get good and trying to train. For example, I, I ran the New York City Marathon on a bit of a, a bit of a lark. A friend asked me to do it for a charity thing. And I, I did a few of the training runs that you're supposed to do, but I never really did the whole schedule. And you're almost supposed to run the exact marathon before you run the marathon. And to me, that I didn't like the spirit of that. I, I didn't want to just, I didn't want the day of the marathon to just be like running the same carefully calibrated run I'd already done. I wanted to, there to be this sort of mystery. I wanted it to be sort of an epic quest. Like, mm. could I actually do it? So, of course, I blew up around mile 16, and then it was sort of running and walking a little bit and, and basically limped to the end. I did okay, but it was nothing amazing. Mm. I could have done better had I done many more months of training, but to my mind, it was an unforgettable experience of just being pushed to the absolute wall and, and going beyond the limits of what I knew because I only knew half marathons. I wasn't sure I could even finish the marathon at all. Obviously, a lot of people are going to take issue with this and people like to train and they take great pride in running the fastest they can. But to me, there was a, this, this was another approach that I found at least equally valid. So on the other hand, it's important to have positive motivation and enjoyment and fun. But you also mentioned that if you're not uncomfortable, you're, you're probably not learning. And there's a great deal of discomfort and dissatisfaction and frustration that comes along with learning. And if you're not experiencing that, that means you're probably stagnating. On the flip side of, of raising children, do you think that trying to provide too comfortable of an environment for people, do you think that the pursuit of comfort, the pursuit of this plateau, mm-hmm of comfort and ease is ultimately going to get in the way of us improving and becoming better and having our our kids get better? 
Is there an optimal level of discomfort and, and fun to be optimal learners? I mean, oftentimes to get to that point where you feel exhilaration in the learning process, you have to yeah. go through some discomfort, some negative feedback, some frustration, some right. difficulties. A lot of parents out there have probably tried to get their kids to ride bikes and put them on bikes with training wheels because mm-hmm. that seems like a, a noble way for them to learn to ride a bike. And I, I did this myself. And I found something interesting is that my daughter took to the training wheels very easily and, and was suddenly going really fast. So she, she was doing quote unquote well at riding a bike, but then she would take a turn and was taking it because she didn't really understand what the dynamics of the bike were because she was on these training wheels. She took the turn too fast and wiped out. So in trying to cushion her whole experience of learning to ride a bike, I'd actually set her up for a larger failure. So I quickly switched, as a lot of people now do, to what's called a balance bike, you know, which is just a bike with no pedals. They sort of push along and they can feel the whole sense of balance. And it just it's a little more challenging in the beginning, but there's a more active learning process going on yeah. there. And then the minute you get them on a real bike, I mean the learning transition is almost yeah. you know negligible at that point. So that's that desirable difficulty again, that making it just a little bit challenging and giving them the real experience. It's like in the pool, putting water wings on kids. It's a band-aid. It's not going to teach them how to, what the water is like or how to swim. But we often want to do that for our kids or even for ourselves, give ourselves those cushions because it feels better. I've seen studies that in less advanced countries, the children are allowed to participate in the cooking, meaning they're using knives and they're exposed to fire and they're doing this at a young age. Whereas I think when American parents have their kids cooking, they'll see them screw up and they'll just go in and say, look, just get out of here. I'll take care of it. And then they never actually learn to imitate and learn to associate this activity with as an enjoyable challenge. They were just taught that they're no good at it, so they should just stay away. This you know, speaks to a very important part of the, of the human learning mechanism, I think, which is that imitative aspect. There's this whole wonderful part of the brain that's been dubbed the action observation network that really lights up when we watch someone do something. I myself just the other night bought an Ikea desk for my daughter. And rather than go through the whole instruction manual, I just found someone who had posted a YouTube video step by step. And I just basically in almost like ape-like fashion, I was just mimicking what he was doing. This is one of the learning styles that actually is true, that you can learn a lot better simply by watching someone than than reading a set of instructions. I mean, I, I could argue that right now and that that is a fundamental distinction. Are you familiar with this thing called the marshmallow challenge? It was designed by a guy at Autodesk, and it's something I do in my design thinking workshops where you give people pasta and marshmallows and they have to build a tower in a finite period of time. And it turns out that business people are really, really bad at it. What they'll do is they'll design something on paper and then they'll build this thing. And then at the very end, when the timing runs out, the whole thing collapses. Apparently, kindergartners are better at it than, than MBAs. And it's because they fail multiple times because they don't understand the the tensile properties of pasta and marshmallows, whereas the MBAs assume that they understand the tensile properties of these things. And so they wind up having these disastrous (laughs) failures and, and the kids will just incrementally learn all about the properties of these materials and thereby they succeed in building these larger towers. And I thought at some point people forget how to learn or they, they assume that they, they know what they don't know when confronted with something that's novel. Yeah, that's a great point. And also it speaks to how experience can get in the way. 
people get hung up on the, the so-called functional fixedness. And adults with a lot of experience would sort of have a certain set of thoughts about pasta or marshmallow, whereas kids would be very fresh to these things. I think the most interesting metaphor or example that you provided that I continually go back to is this idea that if you're, if you're a beginner and you're trying to draw a face, it's easier to actually copy this image upside down because when it's upside down, you don't have that pre-existing notion of what a face is supposed to look like. So I thought that was very, very powerful. Yeah, and that really is sort of a metaphor, I think, for how much of, you know, Lisa Feldman Barnett calls this the predictive brain. We sort of walk around every day, you know, almost living in this, in this model of what we think the world looks like and sort of is, because it makes life easier. We don't have to, you don't want to try to analyze every moment of our life, but can be a problem when asked to do something like draw and to really see someone's nose the way it is, rather than, than a quote-unquote nose that is this pre-existing, we have almost have sort of a pattern matching algorithm in our head of what a nose is. So yeah, drawing is another one of these great ways of sort of reprogramming your brain and looking at the world in a different way. And of course, the older we are, the more experience we have, the deeper those assumptions become. And the predictive brain becomes ever more predictive, I think. Well, you talked about surfing, you talked about chess, you talked about drawing, singing. After you finished the book, did you start any other things or do you have any other uh, new challenges on the horizon? I think the one thing that this did awaken, and kind of what you mentioned earlier, this just this ability to be a beginner and to be comfortable with that. I'm not sure that I've gotten any faster at learning, but the, the willingness is there. And just having a, a kid, of course, always keeps this channel very open. And my daughter wanted to take up indoor climbing. We'd only done it like once or twice before, but now we're really at it in earnest. And, and this is something that yeah, so I've gone through that whole process again. I've made the beginner mistakes. My muscles are doing weird things. I'm trying to figure out what look like impossible climbs suddenly become slightly more possible after a few weeks. I mean, that level of desirable difficulty. And I've moved into a house. And as any homeowner you know, knows, there's an endless array of potential projects that you, you then decide, do I want to call in a professional? Do I want to take a stab at it myself? So I just laid a bluestone walkway in our backyard, and, and this this sent me into the deep world of masonry and and stone, right. and all this is incredibly you know exciting and, and energizing. I think it just reveals the continuing wonder of the world around you because you have to engage with it. It just gives you yet another level of engagement with the world, rather than the easy thing would be to to call someone and do that. But I think we shouldn't always do that. We should sort of take the slow, hard road once in a while. This has been a great conversation, and I love your approach to individual learning. I think on the institutional side, universities and other learning institutions have to kind of take more of a lifelong learning approach. We train people for four years or two years, and then we just kind of push them out into the world. And I think there's maybe too much emphasis on providing content rather than providing a capacity for learning that can be uh, continued after they depart our hallowed halls. I'll just say one point there, which is that my own university career reflects that a little bit in terms of where I am today. I mean, I, I spent my time doing my academic work, of course, but a lot of what I was doing in college was working on the student newspaper, which was a very apprenticeship model where I was actually, writers were paid for their work. We were doing real reporting, real stories. And that, even though it didn't appear on my transcripts or anything, that, that was as much a part of my education as, let's say, the history or the French theory that I was imbibing at the time. And those two things, I think, fused to get me where I am today, where I, I'm obviously a writer getting paid for my work, but then I also have this appreciation for archival research and academic rigor and footnoting and things like that. But that sort of vocational part that was going on really had a huge influence, even though it doesn't show up kind of in an official way. Well, 
this is the book. It's beginners. Definitely worth checking out. We didn't even get to talk about these other two amazing books. You may also like, I think you should check this out. And this one, I, I mean, this is still, there's got to be an update. I mean, now with autonomous driving, I do remember you did talk a bit about autonomous driving even back then and how it would you know, lead to greater density of cars on the road and so forth. But there's definitely going to be a whole new chapter for this book. It's been on my mind, just trying to think if there's enough there, the, r- the right way to do it. But it's definitely, it's been on my mind. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Tom. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.